Welcome to the Monopoly section of Microeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Elin coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So the big thing to understand from Monopoly, from the previous market structure that we've seen, which is perfect competition, and the market structures going forward of imperfect competition, is that here we only have one seller. Typically, the monopolies we're going to talk about are the long-lasting monopolies. And the reason why there is only one seller is because there is a reason why other sellers cannot do the same thing. So you could either have exclusive rights. If you go to see a hockey game in Montreal and uh, you want to buy a beverage, well, uh, even though you find the prices to be extremely high, you can't just set up a new business and start selling beverages at the Bell Center uh, legally. Like it's not something that's doable. So there is a sole seller, same thing as at Bishops. Uh, Sodexo has a lot of monopoly rights over what's being sold on campus. And then uh, that could be one of the reasons. Then there could also be intellectual properties. So if uh, you develop a vaccine or you develop a certain product and that you've developed yourself and it's patented or it's protected somehow or you're an artist and you sing uh, while well, that music could be uh, protected as well so all of those things lead to a monopoly when you have a certain level of protection from other people selling the same product to you as you is uh, all situations where a monopoly could last over time but if you're the first one to open up a a climbing gym and a certain municipality that had no climbing gyms before well initially you could kind of act as a monopoly uh, your, your pricing decision and everything else will be very similar to monopoly it's just that over time as competitors enter if there is more competitors that enter it's going to move away from that monopoly market structure to something more like monopolistic competition or oligopoly depending on the type of product that we're dealing with so Basically here we're talking about a sole seller and because you're a sole seller, well in the past in perfect competition we had two graphs to kind of represent the world market and the individual firm's decision. But now everything happens on one graph because that sole seller faces the whole demand curve to themselves. So that demand curve is uh, faced by the, the sole seller. and. What that means is compared to the perfect competition scenario that we had before, in perfect competition, since you were such a small player, you could increase the level of your output without having any impact on the price. Therefore, every time you ask yourself, do I want to produce more? You're always kind of just looking at the price. You're just saying, well, if I could produce this for $5 and I could sell it for 10, it's going to be profitable. It was, it was pretty straightforward. Whereas now, if you go to drop the price, uh, if you if you want to sell one more unit, the only way you can do so is by dropping the price. If you go to the Bell Center on a given evening and uh, you normally sell like 20,000 beverages, well, if your goal, you're hired by them and your goal is to increase the amount of sales, well, there, it's limited what you can do to increase the amount of sales. You could try to you could potentially offer free popcorn or something else to make people thirsty and so on or some form of advertising, but otherwise the, the main mechanism that we use to increase sales, if we find that they're insufficient, is just by changing the price. 
if they lower the price, they can sell more. And that's the mechanism that we're going to look at here. The thing is, is that when you lower the price to the bell center, you don't only lower the price on the new sales. So let's say you had 20,000 sales before at that high price and you said, oh, we want to go up to 25,000. It's not just the extra 5,000 units that are at the lower price. Everything has to be. You have to set the price at the beginning of the evening and that's pretty much it. So in that respect, when you decide to sell more, you have to look at the impact of those extra units on your profit, on your revenue, but you also have to look at the impact of all the units you could have sold at a higher price that you are now selling at a lower price. So if those 20,000 units were at $10 and now you're going up to 25,000 units, but you have to charge $5, well, in that respect, your revenues are going down because you've only increased your sales by a quarter, so 25%, but you've decreased your price by 50%. So if you compute it, you'd see that you actually have a smaller amount of revenue by lowering the price. So there is that kind of negative impact on revenue. And because of that, the marginal revenue curve, which used to be flat, is actually now downward sloping, such as the demand curve, but actually downward sloping at a pace that is twice as steep. We won't prove why it's twice as steep in this class. Uh, you do see it in intermediate micro or more advanced microeconomics classes. But just take the word for that. Just kind of every time you draw it, just draw the demand curve downward sloping and then draw a marginal revenue curve that starts from, relatively speaking, the same area in the top left uh, corner of your graph. But then it just slopes down twice as steep and it can go negative. So you can cross that horizontal axis and keep going down. And why it can go negative? Well, it's like in that example that we had before that if you drop the price by half and you only get 25% increase in sales, you'll actually notice that the change in revenue between those two scenarios will be that you'll have now a lower uh, total revenue. Therefore, your marginal revenue, your change in revenue is negative. So in that respect, it may be possible for a monopolist to produce one extra unit at, let's say, $5, and the current price is $10, and you'd say, well, they should produce and sell it. The only problem is that for them to produce and sell it, they can't just say, well, this guy wants to pay $10, $9, whatever, and I could produce at $5, I'll produce it and sell it. If you want to produce that extra unit, if you have to drop the price on all previous units, it may be that you're not, uh, you don't have any intent, uh, you don't have any advantage in doing so. You're actually losing money. So this is uh, one of the key things that happen in a monopoly: is that final unit that's sold, the price at which it's sold, is higher than the marginal cost, which was not the case in perfect competition. And that's why we'll, when we talk about whether a monopoly is good or bad for society, well, it has some uh, negative impacts because we're not producing as much as we were would be if we had more competition. They kind of restrict their level of output to increase the price and to make more money. And they're not doing so in a bad way in the sense that they want to hurt people. Like common monopolists don't want to just kind of overcharge people. It's just that if they evaluate what makes them the most money, well, it is always to kind of produce a little less than perfect competition 
and to charge a higher price. So if you had a graph now, like just visualize that kind of Nike symbol for the marginal cost curve, add a downward sloping demand curve, add a marginal revenue curve that's twice as steep downwards, so below the demand curve. Once again, the profit maximizing level of output to produce will always be where MR is equal to MC. So kind of see that intersection point between MR and MC. That is your quantity. If you were to kind of uh, make a, a dot for that intersection point and just kind of like go downwards uh, until you reach the horizontal axis, that quantity is your profit maximizing level of output. But some people make the mistake to kind of then say, well, the price has to be at that intersection point. I'll just go leftward and I'll go to the price uh, vertical axis and that will be the price. And that's not how it works for you to be making the, the, the maximum amount of profit at that level. It has to be that you're always charging as much as you can for that level of output. So regardless of what quantity you choose, and in that case where MR is equal MC, you have to kind of go vertically from there all the way till you reach the demand curve, which represents people's willingness to pay. And from that point on, once you've reached the demand curve, that point, then you go all the way left and that price that you obtain is the monopoly price. That's always going to be the case in a monopoly or even a monopolistic competition when where the graphs are quite similar. So that is the price that the monopolies charge. So we still have the same relationship. MR is equal to MC with a higher price now because limited level of output, which creates some form of dead weight loss, similar to when we had a price control or when we'll have taxation in the future. So there is a certain dead weight loss due to underproduction relative to the free market equilibrium, which is kind of like that perfect competition benchmark. And then from then on, uh, we use the ATC curve to once again determine monopoly profits. The difference here, though, with monopoly versus perfect competition or the other market structures is that a monopoly typically makes profits. So uh, I'll typically just disregard the AVC curve and I'll just draw it as monopoly making profits. It might be small, it might be large, but there is profits to be made. And then from that point on, the big distinction with all the other market structures is that they can sustain profits over time because no one is allowed in until maybe that exclusive uh, agreement that they have expires. So if you think of patents and other forms of intellectual property, some of them have like a, a certain amount of years before someone could kind of copy an Advil or something else. And for those many years, they can easily make monopoly profits. Afterwards, competition kind of settles in and the profits go down to zero economic profits potentially. But if you're in a situation where you're constantly releasing a new product that has intellectual property attached to it, you could think that that firm is going to have profits and they'll be able to keep those positive economic profits. Whereas in the other cases, uh, no barriers to entry typically leads to a situation where more people enter and those profits dilute till they're no longer that much. So market power is the big thing to remember in this thing and this uh, market structure. You have one graph and you can be making profits. You can be uh, profitable over time. There is no transition to a long run situation where perfect competition and monopolistic competition we will see have one. 
and oligopoly we won't really talk about it but there is one as well and then the last thing that is covered in this chapter which is quite in this interesting is the concept of price discrimination so the concept of price discrimination there's two different types of price discriminations one is kind of like happens not really and the other one kind of happens more frequently and is actually legally allowed so the one that doesn't really happen is if you could have a crystal ball and constantly charge someone the maximum that they're willing to pay for your product so let's say you're a t-shirt salesman in Cambodia and you could see like a bunch of tourists coming to you and you know that this tourist here really likes your t-shirt they're willing to pay up to $25 for it so when they ask you the price there's no tag on it you say 25 they're, they're not like super satisfied about the price but they want it they're ready to pay that they buy it then you see someone else and you can see that this person shopped around more they know what the going price is and they're just willing to pay eight dollars for it and for you it's still above your cost so you say eight dollars and they buy it and so on and so forth you're always trying to maximize your profits by charging as much as possible for each product you're discriminating between different prices for different individuals depending on their willingness to pay and uh, their capacity to pay and this is something you'll notice like in construction and other fields and it's something i i dislike it's just having different prices for the same product you ask and sometimes you'll notice that the person's kind of looking around trying to see like what your worth is and uh, try to determine what price to charge you so and uh, that's one form of price discrimination that's not totally accepted you're not supposed to charge different prices to different individuals for the same product the only time where it is accepted is the price discrimination that you could kind of typically see in movie theaters and other uh, situations such like um, the Apple education store is having a different price for seniors and adults or students and adults or kids and uh, and that is a form of price discrimination because if you think of going to the movie theater whether you're a 12 year old a student at bishops or you're an adult or a senior in all of those cases you're taking the same movie seat it's the exact same product but different prices are being charged why is it accepted uh, well <clears throat> no one's really going to complain that you're charging less to students than you are to adults or less to seniors than you are to adults and so on and when i used to think about these different prices for students I always thought that these companies, Apple or these movie theaters, just kind of remember how it is to be a student and they're, and they're nice to us and uh, they think about us they, and they're, they're like, we'll charge a lower price. They don't have as much income, so it's, it's better for them and oh, it's just our way to help out future generations. And that could sometimes be the case. It could be the case of trying to create some form of brand loyalty, but in reality, uh, they do so because they make more money by doing so and it kind of sounds counterintuitive when you think about it that the idea that they can make more money by offering discounts to certain groups but the reality behind it is is quite interesting in the sense that adults who have a busy life who might have kids uh, who have a lot of disposable income can pay quite a lot of money to go see the movie that they want to see if they're a star wars fan and a star wars movie comes out or if they're whatever fans and a movie of that nature comes out 
they're able to pay a lot more than the going price for that first movie. And then afterwards, if you think of their demand curve, well, even if the price of the movies were really low, they wouldn't go that often because they're just too busy with everything else. So in that respect, it's a, the willingness to pay the initial point is really high and it's very steep. Whereas a student or a senior who has more time on their hands uh, but less money will have a lower initial willingness to pay typically for the first movie. It might not be like $30 to see a movie. But afterwards, if the price is low enough, it might mean that like they have activities with friends to do and it's just like they'll go more often to the movie theater if the price is just kind of low relative to other options on a Friday night. So they have more of a flat demand curve, they respond more. And if you were to try to find kind of like a middle point in terms of pricing, like an all around pricing for everyone, it wouldn't make as much profit because if you set a price that is too low for the adult, it doesn't really change their behavior that much. Or if you set a price that's higher than what the current student price is for the student, uh, it's not really going to be beneficial because a lot of students will no longer go see a movie. So you'll have very few more adults going and you'll be getting less revenue from each of those because they're willing to pay more than that price. So let's imagine that adult price is 12 and student price is eight and you put like a common price of 10. Well at 12, between 12 and 10, you won't see many more adults. So you'll just lose all that extra revenue of $2 for each of those tickets that would have already been sold. And between eight and $10 for students, you might have students go like to half the movies they used to go at $8 when it's 10. So all of a sudden, even though you've increased the price by only 25%, if your sales go down by 50% for students, it's not beneficial. So keep that in mind that in the future, if ever you offer a product, it may make sense for you to actually do some form of price discrimination. You're able to attract more depending on people's willingness to pay and responsiveness to changes in price, and you're just able to make more revenue. But what's really required in this setting is that you cannot resell between one group and another. So if you think of taking a bus ride from Sherbrooke to Montreal, myself, who's no longer a student, I can't just buy a student ticket or you buy me a student ticket and then I go up on the bus. Typically the bus driver will check at the very last instant that you are a student. So even though someone bought the ticket for me, they can't sell it to me and I use it if this person verifies at the last instant. If you think of Apple computers, it might be possible to resell, but they don't offer too big of a discount. So probably there's not a lot of that going on, but typically most good price discriminations do not allow for any resale to occur. And that's how they can maximize their profits. If you're selling a product such as like oranges or whatever else, and it's really easy to resell and a market for could form and you create a big price difference between the two, it's definitely not going to work out. And in that case, uh, you're worse off because who's making that extra profit? It's the people operating a second market. But if you're able to block that off uh, completely, price discrimination may be good. So overall in this chapter, we saw that monopolies do exist. Sometimes they're short-lived. Sometimes they last a long time if there's proper barriers to entry. And then because they're the sole seller, they have market power. 
they're price setters, whereas in perfect competition, we're talking about price takers. So you choose the price that you charge, and depending on the price that you charge as a monopoly, the amount of sales kind of follows through. Whereas in perfect competition, you chose your quantity because the price didn't change regardless because you're such a small seller. And then we saw that the marginal revenue is twice as steep, that you always charge the higher price. So where MR is equal to MC, that's not the price. You have to go up to the demand curve and then across to find the price that it's sold. And yes, there is a certain cost of society of a monopoly. And the cost of society is not necessarily that monopoly profits are bad, that businesses are making money is not a bad thing. It's just that they're underproducing uh, relative to what a free market situation would be and it leads to a certain level of debt weight loss similarly to what price controls or taxations do as well. So I hope you guys enjoyed this little chat on monopoly and price discrimination. I'll leave you guys to it in the next uh, audio lecture next week. We're going to talk about the imperfect competition market structures of oligopoly and monopolistic competition. Have a good day.